Just take a moment. Breathe in through your nose, a deep calming breath. And then out through your mouth, long and slow. Keep going, deep and slow. You're here listening because you care. You're here because you want to know more. You're here because you are strong enough. You're listening to the Strong Enough Podcast from Eating Disorders Families Australia. Self-care is vital. Use this short meditation at the start of each podcast to take a moment for yourself. Keep those calming breaths going as you listen to this episode, which is sponsored through the generosity of people facing similar challenges. We have developed a much more sophisticated understanding of the causes of disordered eating, and we actually now believe the major causes are genetic and also the non-shared environment. In other words, not the family environment, but things like peer relationships and media. We know that for both boys and girls, the more social media accounts they had, the higher the levels of disordered eating were. I think the difference might be in the types of accounts that they're having. Welcome to Strong Enough. I'm your host, Joe Stone. And this episode, we're speaking with one of Australia's leading eating disorder researchers, Professor Tracy Wade. For more than 30 years, Professor Wade has been at the forefront of research, clinical practice and public policy. She's co-written three therapy books, published hundreds of papers and has just been awarded the 2023 Australian Association for Cognitive and Behavioural Therapy Distinguished Career Award. In this episode, we're going to focus on Professor Wade's work on the latest genetic links to eating disorders, the importance of media literacy as a way to combat the menace of social media, and find out her insights into the perfectionism trait that can trigger disordered eating in many forms. And like we do with every guest, at the end of the episode, we'll ask Professor Wade for her three best tips to help you navigate your caring role, which includes life lessons for us all. Professor Wade, welcome to Strong Enough. We are absolutely thrilled to be able to speak to you. You've been working in this field for more than three decades now. How do you think the landscape has changed in terms of the social causes of disordered eating? I think there's actually been what I would call a revolution over those three decades. When I started work in the field, there was a focus on family blame. And what's happened in that time is that we've developed a much more sophisticated understanding of the causes of disordered eating. And we actually now believe the major causes are genetic and also the non-shared environment. In other words, the fam- not the family environment, but things like peer relationships and media. How's that impacted families? I think it's empowered families. They've felt very disabled by being blamed for the emergence of an eating disorder. And, um, you know, I think that actually paralyzes constructive behavior. And families would generally suggest they find it liberating to understand, just like any disease, 
things can be handed on through genes, but there's a big impact and an unequal impact of the non-shared environment on whether those genes are expressed. So, you know, that has become, I think, quite an empowering knowledge. Obviously, social media is a huge thing. What else has changed in terms of those external influences on us in the last 30 years? I think the other things that have changed over the last 30 years is actually the pressures on young people to achieve. We know that perfectionism has actually increased in young people over the last 30 years. And when we're not quite sure about why, but when we look at the social settings, we know that there's a greater emphasis these days on the individual achievement rather than communal living. And sort of this idea of the importance of getting ahead and and getting in front, which I think, you know, there is a, a definitely greater emphasis on that than when I was growing up, which was that, um, you know, there was just that slightly less emphasis on achievement and a little bit more expectation that having a happy life would actually be quite enough Uh, rather than having to achieve across lots of different domains. So we we think, you know, generally there's been, um, particularly in Western cultures, that focus more on the individual than the community. And so therefore the individual feels it's really up to them to to strive to be better than other people. And I think that um, then influences things like weight and shape and eating. Mm. How truly significant do you think it is the impact of social media? Because, you know, we all scroll these thousands and thousands of hours of content. Why is it that for some people it can be really toxic? Yeah, our research, we've been looking at experimental studies and we've put them all together and found that there is a significant impact, particularly of visually based social media or appearance focused social media on decreasing satisfaction with body image and we know that's a risk factor for an eating disorder so you know that that um, exposure particularly to the visual there's a lot of research now that shows that visual is much more impactful on our emotions than the written word or the spoken word and of course social media in particular is heavily based on the visual and when it comes down to appearance that clearly has almost a direct communication line to the brain and has the potential to cause damage. Why is it, what is it in the brain that makes us more susceptible to visual rather than words, spoken word, for example? I guess if we go back to evolutionary sort of processes and if we think back to the cave person, there was no written or you know, not a lot of spoken word, and it was more done with pictures. And if we think of our own Indigenous population, communication was often done with pictures on on walls or stone, and that was universal language uh, rather than different types of of language or or anything written. So I think it's part of our basic DNA to really relate more heavily to pictures and visual depictions in terms of our understanding of the world. And it can obviously be quite unrealistic, can't it? It's not actually what real life is in in many cases. I think that's a major problem with social media, that a lot of it 
isn't real life, even if you're seeing a picture of a real person, even if they haven't doctored the picture to have better skin tones or carve off a bit of thigh or whatever it is they're doing, it's usually that they've taken, it could be up to 100 photos and chosen just that best shot. And and that's not real life. So I think social media is particularly unrealistic. Uh, the, the issue with that, of course, is that when we talk to kids, they'll say to us, well, I know it's not real, but I still want to look like this. You know, the, the, the lure of that visual depiction is is really strong. How do you teach your loved ones to be more aware of how unrealistic their feeds can be if they want to be the unrealistic image anyway? That's, yeah, that's I think tricky. it's, it's pr- it, it is tricky and um, I would suggest, I mean, we do a lot of teaching about media literacy, so I think it's good to um, teach people about the fact that what they're seeing is unrealistic, to look at the tricks of the trade so they can become critical consumers, but we know that's not quite enough. I think we also need people to reflect on the harm that's done and really in a sense, deciding for themselves, but monitoring which social media sites make them feel better and which make them feel consistently worse. And then we would suggest that they go through a process of curating the use of social media sites and really, you know, thinking about, you know, what is it that's helpful for them and what is it that's harmful for them. I like that idea of how it makes you feel. That's a really good way of measuring it, isn't it? Yeah, I think, you know, people get fascinated with things, but we know we don't always get fascinated with things that are helpful to us. And so there is a need to sort of step back and evaluate what's going on for us and to really think about, you know, in this world, do we actually need more harmful influences or do we need to actually protect ourselves a little bit? Well, it is it is very hard. Like if we want to protect ourselves, it is very hard to just delete an app or just decide that you're not going to go on, on a particular platform, particularly when that's a major form of communication. You know, you see the young people these days organising their parties and having all of their conversations and so on online. So how do we encourage our loved ones with an eating disorder to handle their social media when switching off is just not really an option? Mm. I wouldn't completely dismiss the cold turkey switching off approach. Okay. I, I know, yeah, mm. I know most people don't do it, um, but we have an outstanding example of a young person in South Australia who had anorexia nervosa, who, as part of her recovery, did take herself off all her social media sites, uh, and she was the only person in the classroom, or perhaps even the school, to to not act, be accessing those sites. But she decided that was actually a priority for her at that time because of the harm she felt that it was doing to her. And, you know, so I think it's I think it's an unusual pathway. Most people can't do it. But sometimes you might think of it as a short-term strategy over which time you need to develop resilience. And there will be a time where you feel strong enough to, to come back to it. Um, I guess the other way because cold turkey, as you say, is not um, the most realistic. <laughs> mm. The 
other way to think about it is really, again, this idea of, well, what sites do I need to use for communication that don't rely on lots of appearance-based imagery? Um, you know, are there ways to communicate that don't don't require that visual depiction, that comparison type factor, that giving a rating on how much people like things? Um, people can choose not to get into those extra sorts of things. You know, why why tell people whether you like something or not? Do we need to have that? And I need I think people need to also think are they using social media in a way that's congruent with their values? If the major focus is communication with friends, then do that, but don't get involved in sites where there is uh, appearance comparison or bullying or critical comments or rating of whether people like things or whether it's acceptable to them. So having a bit of a look at what you're doing with your social media and how you're using it um, is important. Are there other tips that you might have on handling social media and how you might be able to talk to your loved one with an eating disorder about how they might be able to better deal with their social media? Yeah, I guess, you know, it's worth talking to them about whether it's making entrenching the eating disorder more or not. Um, But it's also asking what are their fears about not using that particular platform what's sort of their worst fear about what could happen and are there ways to actually combat that are there things that need to be replaced in their life if they remove that particular social media platform so if it's about interaction with others you know are there uh, ways to actually meet up more face-to-face with people or to communicate more using you know, just your basic SMSs or, you know, other yeah, other safe Yeah, but other safer ways, what is it they're wanting from social media? What is it afraid that they're losing? And is there another way to actually provide that in their life and but at the same time remove the harm that social media may be doing? Is there a difference between the way girls and boys, men, women, non-binary people may experience the influence of social media? I saw in one of your recent studies, which was very interesting, that boys, for example, are less likely to have a parent as a follower on their social media and girls are more likely to post pictures of food. So what's the gender differences? Yeah, I think there's certainly overlap in that we know our work with 13-year-olds, we know that for both boys and girls, the more social media accounts they had, the higher the levels of disordered eating were. I think the difference might be in the types of accounts that they're having. Um, so it was only for the girls that the more time on Instagram or Snapchat increased disordered eating. It was associated with an increase, but not in the boys. So I think it is the way that they, um, you know, the specific types uh, there's a bit of difference in the choice there about the different types of social media and the content. And, you know, that boys um, are following particular types of content, girls and other people who are non-binary may be looking at quite different content. Um, but again, if it's it's about, if it's visually based and it's about comparison, um, then, that, you know, that can and it's focused on appearance that can start to be unhelpful. Are you able to rank the social media 
platforms by what's sort of worse for people who might have an eating disorder? Is that is that something your research has been able to do? Uh, we haven't looked at that specifically. We just talk about appearance focused and things that contain a lot of imagery and that tends to be Instagram, tends to be Snapchat and, um, you know, but there could be you know, it's a rapidly changing field. So um, I think using those general principles is a better way to go. Mm. What about the girl dinner hashtag, which has been popular where women post images of their dinner? Mostly it's it's a snack plate, really. It's the kind of thing you pull together with the least amount of fuss and it's something that you'd probably feed to your toddler. Do you think that's uncovered a lot of disordered eating that probably hasn't been diagnosed? Uh, yeah, I think um, certainly posting pictures of your dinner, regardless of, of the quality or the quantity, is probably very similar to comparing body shape on social media. It's, you know, and in particular, that um, girl dinner hashtag is boasting that I don't need much to eat. And um, so, again, it has that visual depiction, that comparison um, you know, that suggestion that less is better. And so I think, you know, it is um, certainly something that would reinforce disordered eating. And I think generally what we need to encourage young people to do is to spend more time on valued activities that build up self-esteem. And what looking at your social media at what other people are eating is really probably not something that's going to build up your self-esteem. So is there any way that social media can actually be a, a force for good? I, you know, showing you lots of different bodies, for example, can it be a good thing? Uh, uh, you know, I, there could be other content that you could look at. Yeah, yeah. I think certainly social media can be a force for good. I think the communication enhancement is fantastic. But generally, I think research is tending to suggest that anything a poke focused on appearance can create problems. Um, I know the work of my colleague Marika Tigerman where she's looked at, um, you know, the, the provision of, of different bodies and, um, you know, with sort of hashtags or whatever. It still has the problem of getting people focused on appearance as being something that's central to our identity. Um, so I guess I, you know, I'm pretty, um, you know, back in the dinosaur age, but I would say that anything focused too much on appearance, regardless of whether we're trying to promote diversity or whatever we're trying to do, is still overvaluing the the role of appearance in our lives. And so we've moved much more towards a body neutrality stance now in the work that we're doing, where we're suggesting that we, we don't try to be positive or negative about our bodies. Uh, some days we'll feel better, some days we'll feel worse about our bodies. That's the natural flow of life. But the, the overall aim is to actually work on not overvaluing appearance in terms of how it affects our self-esteem, to broaden the range of things that affect our self-esteem and not to make appearance central, either in a good way or a bad way. Mm. And perfectionism is a trait that people who develop eating disorders certainly seem to, that certainly seems to come up a lot for them. And you've done a number of research papers on this. So can we just start by actually defining what is classified as perfectionism? Mm -hmm. So it's the pursuit of 
of um, high standards, but it's high standards done in a very rigid way. So it's this idea of all or nothing, black and white, I have to get the top mark or it's no good at all. So it's a very rigid way of seeing achievement. It's also defined by the fact that people are pursuing these goals in a way that harms themselves. And that might be because they start procrastinating because they're afraid they can't do it well enough. And so they actually leave everything till the last minute, which creates stress. It might be that when they feel they haven't done it quite right, there's a lot of self-criticism. And the really interesting thing about self-criticism, a lot of people think that it will somehow motivate them to do better, um, like whipping a horse during a race, I guess, But which I'm not sure does make them do any better, by the way. But um, mm-hmm. yeah. the, the, the research actually suggests that self-criticism takes people further away from valued goals. They're less likely to approach that. And, th- and that makes sense because self-criticism undermines our self-esteem. It undermines our confidence. Um, And the other ways that it can harm people is they develop lots of safety behaviours, might be checking or long lists that are colour-coded in order to try and keep them on track to do these things perfectly. And so what they end up doing is wasting a huge amount of time, which could actually be much uh, better spent either um, on achievement or having some time out so that they have a little bit of respite from working on achievement all the time. So why is it such a common trait amongst people with disordered eating? Yeah, it's it's interesting that, that it is very common. And I think um, the problem is that, um, that the standards with disordered eating are very concrete and very easily sort of accessed. And by that, I mean the number on the scales or the the measurement of the hips or the amount of calories. So it, it food comes, food and weight comes with these very clear black and white Measurable, goals. clear, yeah. measurable goals. Yeah, yeah very clear yeah. numbers, whereas other domains in life are a little bit less clear. Um, but we have this whole system around body mass index and, you know, height to weight and, you know, there's all sorts of metrics that people can access easily and it's just a really easy way to say, okay, I've met that standard, I can tick that. And so I think that's why it may be particularly influencing people towards disordered eating. Has your research found any ways that you can talk people down from this really high perfectionist standard so that this isn't triggering an eating disorder? Is there any research yep. that you've, yeah, what yeah. What did you find? Um, it, it, that's a really important question because people generally, when they don't want to hear the message about being less perfectionistic because what they're hearing is that we're asking them to lower their standards. And that's not what we're asking. I I myself have high standards, but the issue is that they're not rigidly held. It's it's not a do or die. I work towards high standards, but I enjoy the journey because I learn things along the way. And when things don't go according to plan, I learn about things. 
and I, I, in, I actually enjoy trying out different things. So high standards are okay. That's the central message. I think that's really important to convey to people because no one's going to get excited about a message which says you've got to lower your standards and be second best. I can't yes. think that yeah. that's appealing at all. But it's how they approach those high standards. And if they're approaching them in a way that does them harm, then we we really try and invite people to be curious and ask, would they be willing to experiment with different ways of achieving their standards to see if they can retain those standards, but that they damage them uh, less and they could actually enjoy the journey a bit more. So an example of that, that we do in schools, um, there's a belief around basically, which goes something like, the harder I work, the better I'll do. And we've known in psychology since 1905, since the Yerkes-Dodson law, but that's actually not true. The Yerkes-Dodson law says um, there's this sort of, um, for a while, when you put in more effort, your performance does increase, but you'll reach a point where if you continue to put in more effort, your performance deteriorates because you've got tired, you're a bit burnt out, you've got stale. And so we ask kids at school to um, limit the amount of, to, to compare how productive they are doing their usual thing, which is up at two o'clock in the morning texting teachers and, you know, working around the clock and all that sort of thing. Um, and then we ask them to have a whole week of limiting the amount of time that they spend on their studies, getting plenty of sleep, being a bit kinder to themselves, taking time out to do things they enjoy, and we get them to rate their productivity over that week. And we ask them to reflect if it's any, you know, how does it look compared to that previous week where they use their old driven habits? And we always find either they're as productive or they're more productive, but they're never less productive. So I think inviting people to experiment with different ways and finding out that being less perfectionistic doesn't mean sacrificing your high standards. Mm. I thought it was interesting. You had one study that you did that showed dealing with perfectionist tendencies had possibly more impact on improving eating disorders than actually treating the person's anxiety and depression. Can you talk us through those findings and why that was the case? Yeah. That it, again, that's a really interesting finding because we, we think of Perfectionism, was, we call it a transdiagnostic risk factor for a number of different diagnostic um, symptoms, but it is particularly impactful on disordered eating. And I think, again, it goes back to that measurable aspect of the eating disorder. When we talk to youth with a lived experience of mental health problems, they talk about the fact that perfectionism leads to anxiety, that anxiety of having to perform then they get depressed because in some way they feel they let themselves down, then they become self-critical, They, and then they think, well, the way to feel better about myself is to try even harder. And it's it's there where, again, the number on scales, the the numbers involved with food and, and weight become a really clear way to say, look, if I, if I achieve that, then I'm not such a bad person after all. And that's obviously the spiral down into an eating disorder. Yeah, yeah. I think, um, you know, that would be the pathway where people can grab onto a number of ways to be perfect. It's not 
usually just in the eating or weight areas. Um, it would be with study. It's being, you know, socially the most interesting person in the social group. It can relate to how people, how tidy they are, how organised. It's just that, again, the eating and weight has this really strong valence of I know what's the right weight. Um, now, of course, we know that that's very illusory. It's like a mirage in the desert because when people get to that weight and they still feel bad about themselves, they think, oh, well, that wasn't the right weight. It has to go lower. So, you know, it's it's a movable target, but at least it's a very concrete target. And people who are prone to perfectionism like that really, that clarity, you know, this is the right answer and everything else is wrong. That dealing with uncertainty, dealing with ambiguity is challenging. Now, genetics is another area that you've done a lot of work in. Can personality traits like perfectionism be passed down or is it in fact built into our DNA so you can have a genetic predisposition to developing an eating disorder? Yeah, both are true. The, um, there is certainly a genetic predisposition for perfectionism and we know that there is a genetic predisposition for developing an eating disorder. And you'll see particularly perfectionism, those traits start to emerge in young children. They particularly like things to be organised. They get upset when they perceive that they've done something wrong. And sometimes the propensity to developing an eating disorder appears early. Just some of these kids um, are tricky to, to feed. You know, families report difficult meals as they're growing up because the child was, you know, uncomfortable with certain foods. So um, it's certainly the way that, um, you know, we know that there is that, that genetic influence and that genetic, genetic predisposition. Is it, that's obviously very new cutting-edge research, or is it something that you've been working on for a while? It's something that we've been working on a while. It's been over my lifetime as a researcher that we've been uncovering that. But also the genetics is much more complex in a way. Um, people sort of do think about – people sometimes talk about genes versus environment, and that's not – really the case. It, there's an uh, interaction between genes and environment. So um, the really exciting things that have been happening in the last few years is that we understand more, we call it epigenetics, where the environment can actually switch on or switch off genetic action. So the environment can be very powerfully used. And we also know that if people practice new behaviours and they do that consistently, they can rewire neural pathways in their brain. So I think we're starting to appreciate that while genetics is certainly a vulnerability factor and the environment can indeed trigger vulnerability, the environment can also be used to build up new behaviours and to build up new strengths. That's interesting because when you think about genetics, you think, well, this is just an unwinnable unwin battle. It's just built into me. So the idea that the environment can influence your genetics is is amazing. Yeah, I think it's a really encouraging message. And um, there's a quote that I really like from uh, Viktor Frankl, who, um, if people know, he was in a concentration camp in the Second World War. He was um, Jewish. And um, his writings and reflecting on that, he 
he um, one of his famous quotes, he says, between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space lies our power to choose our response. And in our response lies our growth and our freedom. And I think that's, you know, our, our understanding of, yes, we are genetically programmed to respond in certain ways, but there always is a bit of a space, there's a bit of a choice, and there's a bit of a way of reorganizing our environment um, to actually help us start to develop strengths where there are vulnerabilities. And um, we sometimes talk about it in the field, like orchids and dandelions, we compare those two things. The orchids are the more sensitive to the environment, you know, they need lots of care. You can't treat them like a dandelion, which will grow anywhere. Um, but you can actually have orchids flourishing in that right environment if you provide that. And so, you know, that's how we think about genetic vulnerability. Oh, that's a lovely way of putting it. I think there'd be some people that would be concerned that, you know, maybe it's your fault that your loved one's in this position or it could be that you're maybe relieved that maybe it is a genetic thing. So, yeah, that's a really lovely way of putting it. Mm, yeah, and, you know, it, we all have vulnerabilities that we hand on to our children, whether they be physical or emotional or mental. That's just the nature of life and, uh, you know, that's nothing to feel guilty about. It's really learning to engage with life to make the most of our strengths and to set up the environment to help us actually uh, develop strengths where our vulnerabilities lie. Um, when you talk about genetic testing, the BRCA gene with breast cancer comes to mind where if you've got the BRCA gene, you're more likely to develop breast cancer and you can take preventative steps. Do you think that genetics will help uh, and the genetics research that's being done now will help us in the future to treat or even prevent eating disorders? That's certainly our hope, and I'm working closely with my colleague Sarah Cohen-Woods from Flinders University. She's a geneticist and epigeneticist, and we're working currently on developing what's called a polygenic risk score. It's putting together, we know that there's no one gene responsible for vulnerability for an eating disorder, and we're trying to develop a um, compilation of of all the genes, the risks that um, increase genetic risk, you develop a score, it's been done in schizophrenia, and you can map that on to the degree of risk, the degree of genetic risk. And so, you know, the hope is in the future that could actually be used in some way to identify those more at risk. And then if we think of the orchid analogy, then we can be more active in helping that person build up protective environments so that they don't go down the pathway of having an eating disorder. Oh, we can't wait for that research. That sounds so interesting. Um, Professor Wade, we ask every guest to give their top three tips, three of the most important things that you'd like carers to take away from our chat on the podcast. So what would you say your top three takeaways? I think the first one from what we've been talking about is that feeling guilty is never constructive. And that, uh, you know, embracing the ability to make mistakes and learn from them is something that the whole family can share. So that would be my top tip. Um, my, my second tip would be, you know, everyone perhaps needs in the family could spend a bit less time on social media and um, 
you know, just get out and spend more time, real time together, face to face, just enjoying each other's company and focusing on the here and now. So that, you know, is, is, um, that's a great tip. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I guess the, the third tip, probably going back to the Viktor Frankl uh, quote, and I think this is for carers and for people with eating disorders, you know, let's look for that space. We all have that space between the stimulus and the response. Um, let's look for it, let's be aware of it, and let's use that space to, to actually make active choices about doing something a bit different. Professor Wade, thank you so much for sharing your insights with the Strong Enough audience today. I loved your takeaways, that learning from your mistakes, spending less time on social media and really looking for that space in your life. Um, We'll make sure to include the links to some of your research in the show notes so our carers can do a bit of a deeper dive into your groundbreaking work. And we really hope we can have you back on the podcast for an update on your findings soon too. So thank Thank you you so much. much. Thanks for your great questions. Thanks for listening to Strong Enough, a podcast by Eating Disorders Families Australia, an organisation caring for carers around the country. Head to our website at edfa.org.au for links to more resources, including webinars, support groups, and the Fill the Gap counselling services. All the links are in the show notes. And remember, you are strong enough. EDFA acknowledges Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the traditional custodians of the land this podcast was recorded on. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and future.